Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is brought to you by Healthy Nest. Go to www.healthynesting.com for diapers, wipes, and household cleaning products that are healthy for the planet and for our babies. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Eliza Pressman, and I'm so thrilled to be here with you to share an episode with Dr. Lisa Demore, who I have on so often because she is such a leading voice in adolescent mental health. And she has a new book that is so fantastic. You read it and you feel like, okay, I'm not alone in this raising teenagers thing. She's recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association. She co-hosts her own podcast, Ask Dr. Lisa. She writes about adolescence for the New York Times. She collaborates with UNICEF. She's written two New York Times bestsellers, Untangled and Under Pressure, both about adolescent girls. And now, finally, after everybody begged, she wrote a book about adolescents, all genders. It's so good. We're here to talk about it. And of course, if you enjoy this episode, please take the time to write a little review and give me five stars. It helps keep everybody hearing about the podcast. If you think it doesn't make a difference, it really, really does every single one. So if you have a moment, which you probably don't, I would love to hear from you. And of course, sign up for my Substack newsletter, draliza.substack.com. You can have the newsletter free in your inbox. There's also a premium subscription so that we can meet every month in person for an Ask Me Anything group live on Zoom. And of course, my Apple Podcast premium subscription. Go to Apple Podcast for my premium subscription to Raising Good Humans, This month was all about resilience. Next month is all about mindfulness and parenting. Thank you for being part of this community and for your support. And now we're going to talk to Dr. Lisa. So today, let's just start with defining mental health. This is really important. And it's probably one of the main reasons I wrote this book is that I felt that how the culture broadly had started to define mental health, really became quite far departed from how we think about it on the academic and clinical side. And what I mean by that is I had this strong sense that that what people were thinking is that you know you're mentally healthy 
if you feel good or if your kid is feeling good or if not good, at least calm and relaxed. And I think it sounds great on the surface, but if you scrape it at, at all, it, it's clear that's a problematic definition because you know we can all start the day feeling good, but anything can come up that can kind of ruin your day and you won't feel happy and you won't feel calm and you won't feel relaxed. But that doesn't mean your mental health is up for grabs. And I, that's not true for adults. That's not true for teenagers. So I would say probably one of the main drivers behind my decision to write this book is I wanted to advance a definition of mental health that is the kind we share on the academic and clinical side, which is mental health is not about feeling good or calm or relaxed. It's about having feelings that make sense in the moment, that match their context. And then most importantly, handling those feelings well, handling them effectively, handling them in a way that brings relief and does no harm. And so why now? Why did you decide to write about the emotional lives of teenagers now? The pandemic was probably a pretty major factor. So one piece being this, I would say, you know, worrisome definition of mental health that had started to take hold where people were really, I think, being given the impression, and I'll say maybe by the wellness industry, it's hard to know exactly that they're really, you know, ideally they should feel good and anything short of that is grounds for concern. But then we also had simultaneously the pandemic land on everyone, and it was horrible for everyone, and it was horrible for teenagers in a very particular way. You know, of course, everybody had their own experience, and some teenagers were relatively protected, and some teenagers suffered, you know, exquisitely through the pandemic. But I think that kind of that crosshairs that parents found themselves in between feeling like they have to make sure their kid is not in distress while simultaneously their kid going through so much distress because of the pandemic. My experience clinically is like, it was just terrifying for parents. And I would say even post-pandemic, it remains quite terrifying for parents. It's very hard to know what's expectable emotional behavior in a teenager, What, how worried we should be when they are distressed what we're supposed to do with their very powerful emotions. And so this book goes, you know, it's it's a book that is not centered on the pandemic. It's really trying to establish where we are now and where we should be headed. But I will say it's very heavily grounded in the first 25 years of my career, which was working with teenagers before the pandemic. And what I can tell you is that was bumpy too, right? Not, you know, you can't really compare and contrast, but Typical adolescent development has always been a rich and busy emotional landscape, challenging for the teenager, challenging for the parents. And so my goal in this book is just to help parents level set about what they should expect and then how can they react most usefully to what they're seeing at home. And I think what's so wonderful, I mean, so many wonderful things about it, but knowing what to expect without this sort of amorphous, you know, buckle up. <laughs> it's going to be a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and helping parents navigate when there's just like stuff that is not right and and when to just have a response or support in responding to these typical experiences that they're going to have with their their adolescents. But before we get into that, previously you've written to unbelievable books about girls. So 
Tell me about this transition and kind of what differences you saw when now writing about all genders. So I would say, you know, I'd always done work with kids of all genders and my podcast includes kids of all genders. We answer questions about kids of all genders. And then my work for the New York Times, where I've written the most, has always been, you know, covered all genders. But my books, my my book length work, Untangled and Under Pressure, really focused on the experience of girls, because I will say that has been the bulk of my clinical work. And, and it's not unusual in in communities for people to send girls to female clinicians and boys to co- you know male clinicians like that's a pretty common pattern but i will say it was the pandemic that made me think okay now i'm just teenagers like we just need to think about teenagers and where we are with adolescence and i loved i, I love drawing on the time i have spent caring for boys and i loved doing the research on how gender plays out in kids' emotional lives, and then also how we think about the emotional lives who, of kids who don't fit into traditional gender categories. And so what are some of the myths? I mean, gender aside and including gender, what are some of the myths that you go through in this book and that we can hear about now to get us thinking and maybe reframing some of the ideas that we have about our teenagers? So the first chapter tackles three big myths that I think do circulate about teenage emotion. And they're all variations on the same theme. And I'll tell you what the theme is, which is distress is bad for your kid. That is not true. And I think we could blow right past that, say, yeah, no, distress is okay for your kid. But I actually think it's worth even resting on that for a minute. Many minutes. Many minutes. Because I would say we are all so shell-shocked from the pandemic and so shell-shocked from the headlines about adolescence during and after the pandemic, that it is very hard for parents to be comfortable with the idea that psychological distress is not only unavoidable, it is acceptable. And in fact, and this may seem like such a stretch, but we know this to be true, very helpful at times to your teenager. So the first chapter doesn't headline it as explicitly as I am here. But basically, I would say if I had to come up with a second subtitle for the whole book, it would be like, let's bring adolescent distress back into the fold of what we see as typical and expectable in development. That's not a very sexy (laughs) subtitle. I didn't make it because of that. (laughs) Not sexy. And beneficial. Yes, beneficial. Okay. So the first myth and this sort of gets to like really kind of drilling down, like where's the value in distress for teenagers? Which again, I can roll that off my tongue. You can be like, you know, yeah, yeah. That is not how we're constructing things right now. The idea that there's value in distress for teenagers. So one myth that circulates is that if teenagers are having big negative feelings, it's going to cloud their judgment. It's going to get in the way of their better thinking. This is not true. We have lots of ways to confirm that negative emotions can actually inform reasoning. They help us make better decisions. They are fundamentally informational, right? If you hang out with somebody and every time you do, you feel really awful after you spend time with them, that negative emotion is a very good friend to you, giving you information about maybe not hanging out with that person as much. What we want is there to be a balance. And I, I bring across in the book a metaphor, a colleague of mine in town, here in town, a psychologist I just love named Terry, shared with me. And she's like, here's how I think about it. We all have a personal board of directors that helps us make decisions, and emotions have a seat on that board. 
so do our obligations, financial considerations, you know, logistical things, ethical, moral, you know, emotions weigh in on our decisions. And then what I love the way she says is she's like, but they are not the chair of the board and they very rarely have the deciding vote. So bringing emotions in as part of how we navigate the world. And I would say especially negative emotions as part of how we navigate the world. So that's the first thing I want us to challenge is our belief that they're somehow going to get in the way of kids making good choices. They can actually help kids make good choices. Mm -hmm. A second myth that I think is, again, seems really easy to dispel, but I think it's actually pretty closely held. I think parents worry that negative emotions are damaging to their kids. And here I will say, as the mother of two teenagers, I have a lot of empathy for this perspective. Because when you have sat with a teenager feeling the full force of distress, it is actually a harrowing experience yeah. for the kid and for the grown up. And I really get it why parents are like, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. Overwhelmingly, most of the time, it is not. Overwhelmingly, most of the time, kids are built to withstand a very high level of distress. And you were gesturing at this. It often promotes maturation. Feeling really bad about something can it be an important way that we do not make that mistake again. Feeling incredibly sad about maybe a breakup, maybe the thing that helps us reach out to other people and build connections we otherwise wouldn't have. That we really see painful emotions as profoundly growth giving. And of course, what I want to say, and this is really important, and I won't get into the weeds of it here. For every myth I dispel, I also talk about, except for when it is true, right? So, so there are times when our emotions can be a problem when it comes to reasoning. And it's when kids are in very charged social situations and do make dumb decisions. There are times when emotions become so intense and powerful as to be harmful. And that's what we call trauma. And so I really try to walk through the distinctions between very upset feelings and being traumatized and how we as adults can help prevent that and address that. But those are two of the big myths about emotion. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsors. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That is why it's America's number one meal kit. And remember, all those New Year's goals you promised yourself and you said, I'm going to stick to healthier eating or making home-cooked meals, anything that you promised yourself, make it easier. Make it more likely that those New Year's intentions get met to help you have better food by delivering fresh ingredients and easy recipes right to your door, taking the hassle out of dinner time. You can customize and select the meals by swapping proteins or sides or adding proteins to a veggie dish. There's so many options, and you can even upgrade for organic chicken, organic ground beef. Just make it healthy, make it easy, make it doable. I am not a great chef, so the idea of having all the ingredients ready the exact amount that I need, the spices that I'm going to want to use, and not a bit extra, and no thinking is just heaven for me. So go to hellofresh.com slash human65 and use code humans65 
for 65% off plus free shipping. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Humans65 and use the code Humans65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Make your life easier using HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. All right, so you have the ingredients, you're ready to cook, and you want pans and cookware that are healthy. You're buying fresh ingredients, you're getting organic food. You want the pan that you're cooking in to be healthy, free of chemicals, and easy to use. So start your year off right with non-toxic kitchenware so that you can ditch the chemicals and make healthier cooking a piece of cake. With the Raising Good Humans exclusive discount, you can now save on the full suite of Caraway products, including food storage, tea kettle, and mini cookware. Caraway Homes non-toxic kitchenwares are all designed for the modern home and feature a chemical-free ceramic coating so food can be prepared with peace of mind. No hard-to-pronounce compounds will leach into your healthy ingredients, and your children and you will eat healthy, delicious meals, and your cookware will be gorgeous. These sets come equipped with easy-access storage solutions so that no stacking is required, and some of it you don't even want to store. I leave my beautiful tea kettle right on the stove every day. Visit carawayhome.com slash humans10 to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com slash humans10 or use the code humans10 at checkout. Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern. So I actually think that at least once a day, someone has said, did I just traumatize my child or is mm-hmm. my child traumatized? So I think it's worth, and and it's so flippantly said, and mm-hmm. I think because we're terrified because when you've witnessed, if you are, if you have teenagers and you've witnessed those emotions, it's hard to distinguish. It's hard to get comfortable with the fact that like, oh yeah, this is a survivable feeling when it's somebody that you so deeply deeply love and care for and want just not to experience that. Yeah. So how can parents like shorthand ask themselves, you know, is this a survivable, manageable, well, and even I would say manageable, like Mm -hmm. how can they distinguish between these manageable stressors that are actually building their resilience and when it really is trauma? I, I think that's so valuable, that distinction and helping us understand when is it stretching and when is it breaking? That's a perfect way to put it, right? When is it? That's beautiful. I couldn't think of a better way to say it. That is perfect. So our technical definition of trauma, right? You, 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 you're right. I mean, people use the term in a pretty elastic way, which, you know, that's fine. They're not, it's not their job to use the term the way we use the term. But when psychologists, when clinicians are using the term, what we mean is an experience that totally overwhelms a person's ability to cope, that totally outmatches their coping, that has you know such force that it really leaves a dent in that person's psychological world. We don't actually point to particular events as being traumatic because when we think in that way, it's about the impact, not the source of the impact. What we're interested in is what landed on the person and who did it land on, 
because, and I'll, I'll give an example. This is sort of far away, but it actually makes it easy to understand. We've known for years that a lot of what's traumatic has to do with the impact on the individual because we would have soldiers come back from wartime and they would all be in the same battalion or they'd all gone through the same battle, seen the same stuff, had the same horrifying experiences, and four of them come back fully traumatized and the other 10 come back deeply upset. And what we really started to appreciate is, okay, there are other variables at play that are going to decide if somebody is traumatized by an event. And those variables, and I rattle them off in the book, you know, there are things like genetic vulnerability, past experience, how much social support is available at the time, you know, that there's other forces at play that help us determine that distinction between stretching versus breaking. So if you're a parent, what I would say is for sure, like avoid anything that stands to blow your kid out of the water, right? Like, I mean, they're just like as general principles, but I think also by instinct, all parents will, you know, I mean, that you just don't put yourself, your kid in positions that, you know, where anybody would be overwhelmed. Short of that, try not to have your kid be overwhelmed, but if your kid's going to be in a situation or has been in a situation that was really, really intense, providing a lot of support, talking about it in advance if you can, looking to buffer it in all sorts of ways, right? I mean, kids have things happen like they have to move and leave everybody they know or a parent dies, right? I mean, there are things that happen that are terrible for kids. You know, they're, you know, and I'm putting things out on very different levels. There are measures we can take as the adults around them that will help buffer the impact of that experience and reduce the likelihood that that kid feels overwhelmed and thus traumatized. Okay, so when a parent can't distinguish between manageable stretching and breaking because of their own experience or because they've gotten activated in some way, how can they step back and assess in a more, you know, like grab hold of their board of directors and say, Mm -hmm. I need a little bit of help here Mm -hmm. because I'm not sure my lens is clear. So this is probably where you do need other adults who care about that child as much as you do to weigh in or the guidance of someone who sees a lot of kids and has a lot of seasoning and can give some perspective. But let me make the case for why, why it's really important that we do not work to shield kids from distress and some distress, of course, but we do not want to shield kids from all distress. So one reason being, first of all, you can't, right? I mean, this is going to be a failing effort, right? I mean, it's already a fool's errand. Second of all, you are suggesting to them that they are very fragile. And so when we are aware that our kid is coming up on something that could be very distressing, say getting cut from a team that they are desperate to be part of or not getting into a class that they really, really want to get into, and we know they will be very, very upset if it doesn't go their way. Any loving parent can feel motivated to do anything they can to keep it from going down that road. That suggests to your kid that you feel that they are unable to handle painful emotions. And there is an element of making them feel less sure of themselves, making them feel more frightened of the world, then will ultimately be helpful to their future. I'm going to use an unexpected word here, maybe freedom. If we want kids to have freedom, they have to feel like they can handle discomfort. 
And the more discomfort a kid knows they can handle, the more freedom, the more opportunities, the more interesting risks they can take. Let's dive a little bit into freedom because it's such an important part of this developmental process of becoming an adult. And the freedom in adolescence that's growing and growing and what you're talking about is it's such a beautiful way of putting it like losing you're losing out on the freedom when you're prohibited from experiencing and knowing that you can experience this range so can you talk more about this developing freedom so the way i would think about it is if you're a teenager one thing that you are endowed with is emotions that are very intense. Like that's just the nature of being an adolescent. And so then when you have a class you don't like or a classmate you got to deal with that you can't stand, your reaction can be really, really strong. And it's very easy as a teenager to have the world feel like it sorts itself into two categories, things I like and things that are a full-on crisis. And I think it's, you know, that's, that's a Wednesday for a teenager. Like, and that's why I love them, right? Like they, they are vivid in their world, right? And the job of loving adults around teenagers is to constantly be asserting a third category, which is the things you can handle. So you neither like them, nor do they constitute a crisis around which I need to get activated and intervene. Those do happen, not that often. This is in the giant bucket of stuff we have to handle, which is a huge percentage of life. Yes. And the more kids can feel like, well, I don't like this, but I can handle it, the more options they will have available to them. And in terms of the language for this in our homes, one of my favorite ways to think about this, you know, if a kid is saying like, I can't, I can't, or I don't want to, I don't want to, we can say something like, is it uncomfortable or is it unmanageable? Right. And if they're like, it's uncomfortable, right? Then you're like, okay, I think you can handle a fair bit of discomfort. I've seen you do it. I'm, I trust you and I'm here to help. You know, if there's anything I can do to, to decrease the discomfort, fine, but like, I want you to have at it. If they say it's unmanageable, right, then that needs to be visited, right? Like, why is it unmanageable? Is there something to it? Is there something that can be done to make it merely uncomfortable? But the bottom line is, we don't want our kids to feel like they can only take a step if they are sure it's going to be comfortable and pleasant for them. Because if they if that becomes the standard, they're going to become quite paralyzed. Life doesn't give us those kinds of guarantees. And now a quick word from my sponsor. Did you know that 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair? If you are among them, know that you are not alone and that there is a solution you can trust to deliver results. This is the thing. After you have a baby, you start noticing those little hairs in the front. They're breaking, they're thinner. When you start to parent teenagers, your body also starts to change again. Your hair starts to thin some more. And it's just time to change the conversation. You can do something about this. Nutrafoil is... Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the five root causes of thinning stress, which we're all experiencing, hormones, come on, environment, nutrition, and metabolism through whole body health. 
In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. And I started using Nutrafol because of course I needed to try it out. And also my hair is thinning and it really kind of drives me nuts. And it feels so good. I feel like my hair is getting thicker and healthier and breaking less. And you know what? We deserve to have those little pleasures in life, like our hair. So you can get thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code HUMANS to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code HUMANS. Okay, so what's some language, whether it's physical, like body language or verbal communication, what are ways that we as parents can communicate with our kids this step isn't going to be super comfortable, but in, but I know it's manageable. So it's not that I'm being a jerk. It's not mm-hmm. that I'm unloving mm-hmm. that I'm not making that call or padding this step for you. It's because I believe in you. Well, first of all, I really like that language. I think that's actually quite lovely language. But I think just to sort of zoom out a little bit, ki- kids take seriously our opinions of them. and. When we say something like, look, this is a very tough situation, but you're also, I know, pretty tough cookie. Like I have seen you get through things actually harder than this. That cultivates strength in your child. Your belief that they have strength helps to bring strength about. You know, one way to talk about it is like the power of suggestion. You know, when we say it, it's like, I really think you're going to be okay. Kids are like, I'm going to be okay. And then suddenly they are more okay. So I think we want to capitalize on it. And we just also want to appreciate that it goes both ways, right? When we're like, I don't know, that looks like a teacher who's not very kind. The <laughs> message is you can't handle this, at which point the kid feels like, I don't know that I can handle this. So we're sending those signals all the time. And what I want to just say, I think is like the, the line to walk. We're always walking this line because we're going to push our kids. We're going to ask them to do things that they're not quite sure about. It's not, you know, send them out, wish them luck, tell them to write when they get work, or keep them home, wrap them in, you know, bubble wrap. It's not one or the other. Yeah, it's one or the other, right? I mean, it's not one or the other. You can really say, this is tough. You are tough. We really think you can do this. But if you get into it and it's more than you bargained for or you're feeling anxious, we are here for you, right? It's that like that middle line of like we both believe that you have or will summon the capacity here to manage it. And if we've miscalculated, you're not on your own. We gotcha. I think that that's the line that I think that often the conversation can seem like it's got to be one or the other. Totally. That's not really true. It's always the boring middle. It is. It's always the boring middle. Exactly. I'm sure you hear this a lot where parents are feeling like, well, now it's just all peers. Mm. They don't care about what I think. And you've talked about this many times before and you spend some time on this in the book. They do care. So how can we capitalize on that without that sense of like, they care so much what we think that they're not coming to us because... Mm. they're concerned that now we're going to be 
you know, disappointed, angry, judgmental, whatever. So there's like mm-hmm. another weird space between because mm-hmm. yes, they do care what we think. So how can we use that to their benefit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also how do we make sure that that doesn't turn into something unhealthy? Yeah. So let's start with their awareness of what we think often being communicated by the look on our face, right? I think that that's something we have to own as parents, that our kids read us. Yeah, I know. Like, so, I mean, have you had this happen as a mom where your kid's like, what's going on? Are you okay? And you realize they have picked up before you've picked up. Yeah. That something's weighing heavily on your mind or whatever. Like, it's sort of like, I, I'm always blown away by that. So one way to slice that they care about how we think is that what we think really helps shape how they take in what they're going through. And the simplest example of this is when they're toddlers. You know how sometimes a kid will fall down and scrape their knee and they look at their knee and then they look at your face because they're trying to get a read on how upset they should be about what just happened. And as parents of toddlers, we're usually pretty good at managing our face. (laughs) Being like, you're okay. You're okay. Come here. We'll get you cleaned up. Even if inside we're kind of freaking out about like, oh, this looks like it might need stitches. We know that if we go, right, that that's going to scare our kid. So if we take that up into adolescence, part of what we need to do is be very careful about what we're transmitting about our reaction to their emotions. So if your kid is having a super hard day and is very upset about what happened, I think you try, want to try to get back to that scraped knee mode where even if you're pretty anxious inside, you might be like, okay, well, tell me what's going on. Let's see if we can figure it out. And what you're transmitting in there is, I am not panicking. I am not scared of your big feelings. And you think this is a 15-year-old problem, size problem. I think this is a 15-year-old size problem. I think this is something we can get through, right? That is all transmitted in the like steady presence response. When we go <gasps> right to their adolescent concerns and our thinking is, becomes plain and that we're like picking up the phone and getting really anxious and jumping into action in any variety of ways, the impact in adolescence is, I thought this was a 15-year-old size problem. This is clearly a 52-year-old size problem. Right. This is worse than I thought. So that like that's one take on the like transmitting what we think. Okay. Then there is them caring about our opinion, them caring about wanting us to be proud of them and admire them. And I think what we just want to watch for is opportunities. I think it, kids do like to hear that we are proud of them. Like, I, And I think it's okay to tell your kids you're proud of them. It really matters to them. I also think it's really important, at least as often, if not more, to say you should be so proud of yourself. And really have it be about their own sense of pride. But it's interesting. This is just a a free association. So I have a daughter who's a freshman in college, and she's a talented painter. She makes beautiful art. And she got into an art class. And I somehow had the sense, I wasn't sure, that she wasn't sure we were okay with her taking art in college. Oh my goodness. You know? Like, she's a super earnest kid, and I, I wondered if she was maybe feeling like, we didn't send her to take drawings. You know? And so I was texting with her, which is a lot of how we talk. And she had gotten into the class and she was excited. And so I said, not sure if you're concerned about this, but you should, you know, the, about whether we're good with you taking drawing. You should know. 
I took a lot of drawing and then actually a great deal of photography in college. I think taking art in college is a wonderful thing. So I think she can believe me when I say like, oh, I did the same, right? So if there's a place where you feel like your kid is like, are they going to lose respect from me because of this? And if you feel comfortable saying, oh man, I totally remember being that kid. Use it if you got it. In the overall picture of the emotional lives of teenagers, what is coming up today certainly is that like there is a lot of power in our relationship with them. So if you had to summarize some of your favorite phrases and sources of connection in this time, and even maybe address the change in the relationship, the evolution of the relationship, I think that might be a nice way for us to sort of go forth and connect. So, you know, people talk a lot about the adolescent mental health crisis in the wake of the pandemic. And one of the things that I think definitely warrants the word crisis is that we don't have nearly enough clinicians to care for kids who are really suffering. And that is a huge problem. But I also wrote this book because I believe that by and large, adolescent mental health is best supported by the adults in their immediate environment. And those adults can do so, so much to help kids feel sturdy. And sometimes circumstances you know, require more, but I just really wanted parents to feel deeply equipped to expect distress in their teenagers, not be too frightened by distress in their teenagers, because I think when we're frightened, that's not a great position from which to parent, and then feel like they had a fully laid out repertoire for how to help kids when their kids were upset so that they can do that day in, day out work of helping kids to get to know their feelings, not be scared of their feelings, make best use of their feelings. And I think that so much of that teaching and learning happens in the context of conversations in the kitchen, you know, living with your kid, picking them up from school, they're in a rotten mood, you know, like all of that. That is where this phenomenal education in the place of emotion in our lives comes across between parent and child. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this 